what is this stuff we are downloading? Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and as always, I'm joined by Greg. How are you today, Greg? Doing well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I am enjoying looking out the window at a snowy Amsterdam. It's snowing. It started about an hour ago and it's building up quite well. So um, I'm going to enjoy taking the dog out later tonight and playing in the snow. Did you did you see all the all the snow porn from the UK on Facebook and Instagram over the last week or two? And they had quite a lot of snow in certain parts, didn't they? No, so I was going to say, I, I don't know about you, but my news feed was full of sledgers and people making snowmen and people complaining and people rejoicing. I did. I saw quite a lot of the, the snow chat and it's, yeah, I've missed snow. I haven't seen snow for a very long time. And in fact, my dog, he's never seen snow. So this is the first time. So I, I can't wait to take him out. He's going to go fucking crazy in the snow later on today. Uh, but yeah, I did see a lot of the the stuff from the UK with uh, the snow. One particular item, and I did think about putting it in the news later on, was about a, a, like a happy shopper in, I don't know which town it was. It was, a, a, let's say Falkirk, because Falkirk is, you know, so synonymous with the Swally. And they were selling sledges, like little plastic sledges for 20 quid a pop. People were fucking outraged at them charging £20 for these sledges. People were saying, like, uh, does it take me back up the hill afterwards? <laughs> or, you know, does it come with a flux capacitor? <laughs> uh, you know, £20 for a plastic sledge. Fair play. I, I, they put up a pile of the sledges on their Facebook page, basically saying 20 quid a pop. And people are like, there must be about a 1,000 quid a sledges there. Well, fair play. Supply and demand. People are complaining like, oh, but we're in COVID. We've got nothing to do. Obviously, we want to get a sledge and go sledging, but we've got to pay 20 pounds for it. Well, that's what the shop's charging. So either you don't or you go and get a tea tray like the Bruins and <laughs> go down the mountain. I mean, 20 quid for a sledge, though. It is a bit out of order. It does seem steep. I mean, I don't think... I mean, obviously, I had a sledge when I was wee, but I don't think my girls have ever had a sledge, my kids. And like the, the year my daughter was born, like my younger daughter was born, so she was born at the kind of fag end of 2010, and we had really, really heavy snowfall. So about three days after I brought her and my wife back from the hospital, we literally got snowed in because we live in a cul-de-sac. And for some reason, we would see the the snowplow gritter guy going past the end of the cul-de-sac, but I don't know if it was because it was too hard for him to turn round or whatever. But he never never came up. So the neighbours and I had to go out and basically dig ourselves out every day. And then in the end, I, one of my neighbours was out with a pickaxe because you know how like when snow falls and it freezes and then more snow falls on top of it. He was out there with a pickaxe and he's driving like cracking ice. Uh, but yeah, we're literally snowed in for two weeks. So there wasn't an opportunity to go out and buy a sledge for my older daughter. And then I've been in the Middle East for the last five years. So I did see a clip on, uh, probably on the Instagram or something, of uh, a guy in the States with a blowtorch. Uh, well, not a blowtorch, a flamethrower. A full-on flamethrower clearing his driveway. And people are like, you know, this guy's living in 2032. Because he was <laughs> just out there with a flamethrower, literally just clearing the drive. And it looked like it was going great. And uh, probably a lot of fun. Cares not a job for the environment. It's, it's got to get his drive cleared. 
<laughs> Who is selling a domestic flamethrower that it would be up to that kind of task? It's America, mate. It's, you can buy anything there. Sells, you can buy a flamethrower at Walmart? Probably. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> it's not the most surprising thing I've heard about America in the last week. Poor bastards in Cumbernauld are having to clear their driveways with a can of links and a lighter, but... <laughs> In America, they've got full-on flamethrowers. <laughs> oh, my life. Only in America. Only in America. I mean, you would think that like, the Canadians would have come up with a somewhat ingenious and labour-saving way of clearing snow because they get, by like, certain parts of Canada, they get, like, proper snow, don't they? Like, right up to the windows snow. Yeah, you do get snowblowers. And I did listen to a podcast uh, the other week and they were speaking about snow in New York and whatnot and they, they one of the guys had a, a snow snowblower and he's like it's incredible you just put it on it just clears everything there's no dust or anything it just clears the complete driveway so yeah you get snowblowers it is a thing but this guy obviously just thought i'll use a flamethrower why not (laughs) i've got a flamethrower kicking around the house might as well use it well on that note should we do the news yeah let's have a little look at the news cue the news jingle This is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. So, what have you seen this week in the news from Scotland that has caught your eye, Greg? Well, the first story that I've seen is from the Daily Record, and it involves a baby that was born on New Year's Eve. But it was born in the kind of last few minutes of New Year's Eve. So his dad has tried... The headline reads, New Dad tries to change son's date of birth and claims he has the authority. So the new dad explained that he and his wife recently welcomed their first child at 11.05pm on New Year's Eve. Uh, He's been criticised online after he lashed out at a nurse who refused to let him change his son's date of birth on the newborn's official birth certificate. The new dad explained that he and his wife recently welcomed their first kids, blah, blah, blah. Uh, after the nurse handed him the form to fill out to record the child's details, the new father didn't want his son to have his birthday on New Year's Eve. He wanted his son to have his birthday on New Year's Day. Doesn't explain why, other than he's the dad, and if he wants to do that, then he should be allowed to, right? So he, he tried to put 12.05am on January the 1st, uh, because in his own words, one hour difference wasn't really a problem. However, (laughs) the nurse informed him that the details must be filled out with the correct time and date, leading to an argument as he claimed he had the power to do it as he is the child's father. He goes on to say, I argued with her about it and told her that that she was making a huge deal out of it and it was unfair to my son because he only lived in 2020 for less than an hour. Not sure how that's unfair to his son. (laughs) Fucking what year he was born in. After she tried to argue with me, telling me what I was doing is considered forgery and would cause a huge issue because it's not just an hour, I was changing the date as well. I told her, I'm his dad, so I get a say and I take full responsibility for anything that happens later. But she lashed out at me and told me that this is not how it works and that this form will not be accepted because it contains false information. She got more people involved, including the paediatrician, who disrespected me by raising his voice. (laughs) I told him that I'm the parent and I have the authority. 
they ended up taking the form and didn't let me fill it out. (laughs) My wife said that I embarrassed her by making a scene and acting stupid and lashing out. He, He says his family heard about the incident and also condemned them for ruining their joy and causing his wife to be stressed out. But his brother agreed that it was ridiculous for them to focus on a specific time and also said the baby was born in 2021 because he'll he'll have a whole year to live but only one hour of 2020. So I don't know about you but that story I think sums up modern Britain. Unfortunately it's come from Scotland. I'm not going to say modern Scotland but I just I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand why he doesn't want his son's birthday to be a uh, date of birth to be five past eleven on the thirty first of December, twenty twenty. Well, would you rather have your birthday as the thirty first of December or the first of January? It doesn't really matter because either way, at least for the from the, the age of kind of fifteen until probably the day I die, myself and everybody around me is going to be pissed on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, just like they would be if my birthday was on the 10th of January and we celebrated. So I don't understand why it's such a big deal. I think it... Well, yeah, it, it defies logic. May, I was thinking maybe he was thinking, you know, 31st of December, obviously it's New Year's Eve, it's a big party time, everyone's pished, and they're all celebrating that. So the 1st of January, it gives an excuse to celebrate his birthday. But everyone's either hungover or is still pished and carrying on from the night before. Yeah. So... It's not as if it's going to be party time either way. I I think I'd rather have New Year's Eve. Like, it's more of a... It's a double... Kind of, when's your birthday? Hogmanay. Great. Oh, we'll have a double celebration. Fantastic. I don't have to pay for a party because there's plenty of parties going on at that time. At, okay, your your birthday kind of gets maybe lost in the mix. I wouldn't say it's as bad as being born on, like, Christmas Day. That would be a fucking shiter. Yeah. But... I don't know. I, I can't see the logic in that, but he obviously had his reasons. Maybe maybe he is a massive, massive fan of Hogmanay and he goes all out every year and he doesn't need a distraction of having to organise his son's birthday as well because he's got he's got a he's got a maybe he's got a, a reputation to hold up of throwing the best Hogmanay parties. What I love about this story is how the guy all the hospital staff have condemned him. His family have like condemned these actions. His wife, the mother of the child, has condemned his actions. The only person that agrees with him is his brother. And he's still talking to the Daily Record about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, would you want... Your birthday is not around any big celebration periods, is it? Or any big holiday or... No, my, my birthday's on the 20th of July. So it's right in the summer. If anybody wants to send any gifts, that's now you know what the date is. Mark it in your calendar. It's right in the summer. The only thing my birthday sort of coincided with is Glasgow Fair, which is like... Trades fortnight in Aberdeen, you know. So, but my sister's birthday's on the fifteenth of December, so she would occasionally get the short end. Like somebody would buy her a gift for her birthday and her Christmas. This is for your birthday. Okay. This is for your birthday and your Christmas hen. We'd see her wee face screw up with fault with false false gratitudes. <laughs> see, I'm kind of the same. I mean, I was born 27th of February and I'll always get like, oh, you're lucky you weren't born the 29th. Well, no, because 1981 wasn't a fucking leap year. So, <laughs> of course I'm not lucky. It was never going to happen. I'd have been born the 1st of March. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, oh, you're lucky. 
Plus, I think it'd be pretty fucking cool to be born on the 29th of February. It gives you a certain status. Like, yeah, I'm pretty fucking unique. Well, not unique, but you know what I mean. It's different. It gives you an edge. But do you not find those people whose birthdays are on the 29th of February to be a bit unsufferable? Because they're like, you know, they'll be every four years. So say they're 12 and they're like, oh, I'm actually only three because I was born in a leap year. They're like, well, not really, because you've lived for 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Yeah, I could could see that. Yeah. So that's my first story. uh, Getting the year off to a good start with, uh, again, I mean, I I suppose like a, a woman that would behave like the way that guy behaved and in the modern vernacular would be labelled a, a Karen a, a Karen yeah. is, uh, according to the, the millennials a Karen is like a woman who is a bit full of herself complains about everything but f- f- funnily enough my youngest daughter called my wife a Karen on New Year's Day it was hilarious but what's what, what, what's your first Why? What, what was the reasoning behind her calling her a Karen it was a bit unfair to be honest we, we went out on New Year's Day for a brunch as a family and we had like my wife's parents are here and some friends of ours were in Dubai at the same time so we all went out together and, and the friends daughters and my daughters are really good mates so the kids all sat at a table next to ours the adults sat at the big table and my, my, my wife was just trying to organize the kids you know like have you have you had a look at the menu have you decided what you're going to have blah 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 and um, my youngest daughter Renee said that she was going to ask for something that she'd had there before before, that it wasn't on the menu for the kids. And my wife said, I'm sure it'll be fine. And Renee said, well, I'll just ask anyway. And my wife said, well, if they tell you no, I'll speak to the manager. And Renee was like, all right, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife came over and said, Renee just called me a Karen. I just about a beer coming at my nose. It's hilarious. So. Oh, okay. Well, very good. Uh, my first news story is about a Reading Muirhead man who barged into school kids on a canal path after junky jibe. It's not a latest dance craze, unfortunately. So, uh, this is a ridiculous story, but this is what the swally's about. Uh, Daniel Waugh, 20, he pushed aside the high school pupils aged 14 and swung his arms, striking one of them accidentally on purpose. This is classed as assault, and he admitted the assault and threatening behaviour offences committed near a Tesco on February the 15th. The Procurator Fiscal said it was 2.45pm and witnesses saw the accused, Daniel, staggering around the canal. They realised he was intoxicated. So it's 12.45pm, you know, he's had a drink, it's fine, he's just had a, you know, a good day. So this bunch of school kids approached him and one of them said, oh look, it's a junkie coming. So Daniel took offence to this and he replied to them and he shouted at them oh look at these wee wains I'm so scared and he began kind of flailing his arms around (laughs) Kind of like, I don't know, a marching kind of movement. <laughs> and he, he approached the children, swinging his arms, moving them from side to side. And in the instance, he struck one of the kids on the right leg above the knee. With his arm, with uh, his hands. Yeah, with his arm. So he was, these are 14 year old kids. He's like, like they've said, like imagine, they're on a canal. He's walking towards them, a bit pished. Who knows what he's been up to, if he's been out from the night before, or if he's had a few more than beers. 
because he's walking along, staggering about a bit. There's these wee kids walking along. I mean, they're 14. And they've said, oh, watch out for the junkie. And he's been like, oh, I'm a junkie, am I? And he's flailing his arms around. And he's just kind of knocked one of the kids on the thigh. Nothing sexual, I don't think. But uh, anyway, a, a witness saw him walk in the direction of the canal bridge. So the kids went into Tesco and told someone about the incident because obviously stranger danger you have to tell someone and it ended up with our you know our hero getting arrested so there were six children uh they called him a junkie and he walked past and swung his arms accidentally on purpose this is mentioned quite a few times it was accidentally on purpose it was a glancing blow at a group of six cheeky school children anyway he got fined 335 pounds to be paid back at 80 pounds per month any damages for the boy with a slightly sore thigh nothing 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 mentioned there now if you're a fair play if you're walking along and a group of fucking six 14 year olds were to say something to you I'd be quite fearful in a way the six of them he kind of obviously was just being theatric of swinging his arms like oh I'm a junkie I'm a junkie and he just accidentally grazed the arm it's not like he clipped one of them round the ear or anything or smacked their arse or touched their private I mean obviously he's not on the sex offenders register anything for grazing a thigh but still is that a bit harsh to be arrested for that I mean he did strike a minor but no I don't think it was intentionally it, it does say accidentally on purpose I mean it was it was pissed at lunchtime so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to make an assumption it doesn't make him a bad person I'm gonna make an assumption that this might not be the first time he's been arrested <laughs> or at the very least the first time not the first time he's been spoken to by the police um, I'm just I'm just sort of trying to get my head round how a grown man flailing his arms around accidentally on purpose manages to hit a 14 year old kid on the thigh unless he's not unless he's quite a short arse uh, Dan, is it Daniel Daniel Wall is that his name it doesn't mention his height so I've no idea of the the correlation of 14 year old to I mean 20 he's 20 so I don't know well right whereabouts where are they again whereabouts in Scotland it's Reading Muirhead Reading Muirhead so that sounds like a kind of country place so if they're like countryside 14 year olds are probably quite big right the court case was heard at Falkirk Sheriff Court if that makes any of course it was of course yeah well like you know I mean we've, we've, we've had a few people on the Swally that we've, we've felt have maybe been treated a bit harshly we had the Custard Thief in um, Greenock a couple of episodes yeah. ago we had mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We had your we had your homeless man pat, uh, in in the act of defending himself, bra- yeah. braining somebody with a champagne bottle. I don't know. So he he's, had, he's got to pay three hundred eighty five pounds, but back to the court, and he's avoided a custodial sentence. Maybe it'll, yes, he has. Yeah, maybe it'll teach him not to get lashed in the morning. Well, maybe, but you've all done it, and I, I can imagine that. Like you've had a few beers, there's a few kids around. They call you a junkie, and he's like, "Oh, I'm a junkie, am I?" I I can imagine he's doing kind of the flailing arms like oh yeah I'm a total junkie and it's just smacked one of them on the thigh and then they've ran and told their mammy but apart from their mammy they've gone to Tesco and told the security guard (laughs) and and who knows what that's become they've said oh this man touched me Mm. not that I'm condoning any 
touching of children, but I, I think this has been blown out of order. How many 14-year-olds do you think you could take if like, they were hassling you on the canal footpath? Uh, that is a conversation I am not going to go into, Greg. I don't no, I don't mean it in a I don't mean it in a in a noncy way. I mean if you were if you were if you were forced to defend yourself, how many fourteen year olds do you think you could take? It depends on so many circumstances. Like uh, how big are they? Some fourteen year olds are very small, some are six foot. Have they got a weapon? Have they got knives? Have they got a stab proof vest on? It, it depends. I don't know. I think the key I think the key thing to do is to just go absolutely mental and like seriously hurt the closest one to you like even if he got like kind of gouge his eyes or like burst his nose over his face and the rest of them will just run like fuck guaranteed maybe <laughs> or they might all <laughs> I don't know I don't know I hope I never get into that situation I don't know yeah let's hope I never do well I guess uh, I guess I guess Daniel got off lightly as as we've, as we've spoken about on the Swally before. Some people are very sensitive when it comes to their children, right? It's not yeah, it's, they are. It's not like it was an early when you were just sent back out to get your own back on the guy that sent you home with a, a burst face. Well, that was it. Yeah. Oh, he punched me. Well, go and punch him back. That was the the mantra we were yeah. taught with. Yeah. I remember when I still lived at home and my sister was in primary school and a kid punched her. She was taking the piss out of him. It turned out later on that the kid had like some le- some, had some previously undetected learning difficulties, but she was uh, careful what you tread here. Yeah, no, 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 no. But she <laughs> she was um, she she was like teasing him or something. I can't remember the exact details. And he like full closed fist whacked her, gave her a big black eye. And uh, my stepfather was on to the school board. He was on to the police. I mean, she must have been, I don't know, maybe nine or ten. Not much older than that at school. And my stepdad was... And I remember at school getting a kick in a few times. And my mum didn't do anything. <laughs> like, nothing <laughs> at all. She just told me to stay out of their way. <laughs> but, you know, for, but for my sister, I mean, my stepdad stopped just short at right into the Buck and Observer. So, change days, mate. Certainly is. It's a very different day nowadays. Anyway, what else have you seen? this week my story the, the the protagonist of my story is very worried about going to prison the headline or rather the byline or is it the head no the, the headline is jail fears in capital letters and then a quote i was just defending my son says dad who battered man with a bat on after his son was caught playing chapdoor run ah so this links into the last story effectively of how do you discipline kids yeah <laughs> Well, this guy, this guy didn't discipline the kid. This guy disciplined the adult who attempted to discipline his kid. So, okay, uh, this is Robert R- Robert Rudkin, fifty-two, uh, attacked the farmer David Hanna, fifty-three, with the weapon after he heard that Mister Hanna grabbed his son by the neck when his son ran away from his door. Rudkin said red mist came down after his eleven-year-old son called him crying during a game of chapdoor run in Ormiston, East Lothian, in October. October of 2019. Mr. Hanna was left battered and bruised after Rudkin went looking for him to give him a, insert quotation marks, fright and struck him with a police-style baton. Mr. Hanna called the cops and reported the attack at the village's main street. Local CCTV footage was used to help identify Rudkin, who was afterwards arrested and charged. Uh, he's from Tranent in East Lothian. He appeared at Edinburgh Sheriff Court last week. He pled guilty to repeatedly striking Mr. Hanna on the 
body to his injury. Speaking to the Daily Record, we seem to have the exclusive here, Rudkin said, I never went for any headshots. I could have killed him if I hit him in the head. Not that stupid. But the wee man came on the phone from the takeaway and he was howling. He couldn't speak, he was so upset. I got the red mist and went straight to Ormiston and brought the baton with me. He adds in, "Eh, a mate had given me it, meaning the baton. Rudkin said his son and other kids, aged 10 or 11, had knocked on Mr Hannah's door and ran away. He said Mr Hannah calling his son a wee bastard made him lose his temper and attack him. Rudkin said, it was just Barons being Barons. My son was the last one running away and he was grabbed by the back of the neck. I approached the guy and asked him what happened. To give him the benefit of the doubt, he said the kids had been annoying him all week. The bit that flipped my lid was when he said, the wee bastard at the back and that was my laddie. So I just brought the bat on out and started hitting him. I wanted him to know that that was my son and if he does it again, it will escalate. That's what I told him. I was defending my son. Rudkin fled and said he chucked away the baton after the attack, but now he fears jail. He added, I wanted to give him a fright so he couldn't do that to my son or any other laddie that age. Sentence was deferred on Rudkin until next month. Assuming the courts are opened up again, because obviously everything's shut in the UK at the minute, isn't it? The, the old Rona. So, ever play Chappie when you were a wee boy? Yeah, I did. Yeah, of course. We'd knock on doors or ring the doorbell and run away. Of course you did. It's a rite of passage. I, I would never expect someone to come out with a fucking nightstick or a flamethrower and batter the fuck out of me. It was just a, a bit of a laugh. It was the kind of thing you did. I never went so extreme as to do like the flaming dog shit on the door that I, I think a lot of people did. But yeah, I, I would knock on doors and run away or yeah, uh, do that. Of course, it's a rite of passage. You're a kid. It's the thing, but I can imagine it's fucking annoying as an adult. Yeah. However, I wouldn't go out and with a... Well, he didn't. It was the parent that yeah. came back with a, his police baton. I guess this links into our last episode when we were speaking about a couple of guys that had weapons. That There was a guy with a concrete-filled baseball bat yeah. and there was the guy from Aberdeen who had uh, the pepper spray and it was some other weapon the, he had. I the can't remember now. Lipstick taser. Lipstick taser, that was it. And that was when I spoke about my desire to buy like a, a big boss man stroke TJ Hooker nightstick which I have still been looking on wish.com for and I, I was tempted to, to buy it a few times now maybe not I mean there's not going to be any more kind of chapdoor run in, in where I live in my apartment but I don't imagine I would ever use it unless someone was actually burgling my house but I wouldn't even get a chance to because my dog would fucking set upon them before I even got a chance yeah well you're a father you've got kids if that happened if your kids had done that which I would think you would just laugh and be like ah fuck it you know do, well if you've got your just desserts doing that ha 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 let's all sit down and watch Gogglebox uh, would you get your back on or your cricket bat out and go and seek down the person that had upset your kids? I guess it, it would depend the level of kind of assault, I suppose, that the, the, the adult is supposed to have visited upon. I mean, don't forget, I've got girls, so they have to, they would have to have done something pretty horrendous for me not to immediately take their side. But, like, you know, if one of them came home with a bit of a, after getting a bit of a kick up the arse from some woman that whose door they'd rang like 20 times would run away over the last couple of weeks. I think I, I don't think I would be that annoyed. I think my wife, on the other hand, would want to go and have words. I think I, I, I think I could be a bit more pragmatic about it. There is a there's a photograph of uh, Robert Rudkin on the article, which I'm going to show you now. Here he is. I mean, he looks like an absolute fucking walloper. <laughs> 
Can, uh, yeah, he does. I'm gonna. I'm, I always say that I'll share a picture from some of the stories on Instagram, and I always forget. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna do a screen grab right now, so I don't yeah, forget. You need to share that. Yeah. So. Uh, when this episode goes out, you need to share that photo. For sure. We need to see that. So, what's your last story? Any more children being assaulted? or No, my New Year's resolution on this, Wally, is I'm going to share one happy story and one bad story. So, I, I want to bring this to a happy place. So, I'm sharing a happy story this time. And it's about a Scots dad who is a big hit in Thailand. And he's opened a cafe serving up Aberdeen Butleys, which I disagree with. It's Rowie's. Right. Fried Mars bars and Lorne Square sausage rolls. So, basis of the story, and this is in the, the daily record from a couple of weeks ago now, but I, I just had to share this because it just made me feel good and just, yeah, I need to share this. It's about a, a Scots dad and he is serving up Aberdeen Butleys, deep fried Mars bars and steak pies to hungry expats in Thailand. And he has queues of Scots to sample his delight. He's a 37 year old. He's from Aberdeen. I don't know him. You know, we're similar age, but I don't know everyone lives in Aberdeen. And he's turned the local taste buds onto his famous rolls from the northeast. He's serving mince and tatties, square sausage, black pudding rolls, chips, cheese and beans. And like his menu is growing as the demand grows. So he moved to Thailand in 2009 after he was made redundant from an oil company. And he decided, ah, fuck I'm going to set up like a, a little cafe and he's in a small town in Thailand uh, I'm not even going to pronounce it uh, there's not a lot of tourists there but whenever he is he just relies I guess on local trade but everyone seems to want a taste of home so he ended up buying a, a place and so that he could do the food and then he decided okay I'm going to start making some Scottish food and sell it to locals so he does macaroni pies which obviously is a as we've discussed in the podcast in the past is a an Aberdonian thing which mm-hmm. I, I I don't like a macaroni pie he does mince and tatties scotch eggs uh, lawn square sausage which which obviously not an Aberdeen thing, as we've discussed in the podcast. Uh, he does black pudding, battered Mars bars, chips, cheese and beans, and Aberdeen butties. So apparently there's a lot of fishermen going offshore in Thailand. Uh, some of them are Aberdonian. I would never have known that. So he started getting kind of hints from customers as to what they would like. So he's building up his menu based on the Scottish people that come in and are saying, oh, do you do this? Do you do this? And I can imagine imagine it's very as we've discussed on the swally before like an Aberdonian would go in and say do you do rowies whereas a Edinburgh person would say oh do you do chips with salt and sauce and uh, a Glaswegian I guess would say I don't know sausage supper sausage supper sausage supper Uh, his first problem was that he couldn't source lard because obviously (laughs) it's a big thing in a lot of the Scottish dishes but he managed to find some and he managed to make his own lard I don't want to know because I know what lard is so I I don't want to imagine what he does to make his own lard it's just fat right lard is just fat isn't it it's animal fat it's it's animal fat is it not pig fat because living in Dubai you could only get lard in the pork section so So is it like pig fat yeah I don't know 
So I've just I've just looked it up. It says lard is a semi-solid white fat product obtained by rendering the fatty tissue of the pig. Okay, so it's pork fat. Yeah, he's loving it. Uh, he's enjoying himself. He is doing great guns, and he does say at the end he's going to experiment with some local flavorings. He could maybe see if he could do some Tom Young paste or some Thai green curry rowies. You never know. So fair play, happy story. I'm so happy. For for you uh, that you're doing well in Thailand and enjoying making Scottish delicacies and it's a nice little taste from home so a big shout out to his name is Jackie Gerard. So, big shout out, Jackie Gerard. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, I think there is there are, there are quite a lot of Scottish expats live in Thailand, and I think a lot of them are kind of retired bachelors or d- divorcees. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know exactly. What you yeah, mean. yeah, of course I do. Does Gary Glitter still live in Thailand, or is he in jail? Gary Glitter. Uh, I think he's in jail. He lived in Cambodia for a while, but I think oh, he's in jail. Cambodia. Right? I was going to say, I wonder if uh, I wonder if he's a regular to uh, your man's cafe. <laughs> Do you have anything else this week, Greg? I don't. No, I don't. That's me. I, I mean, I don't bet you. I struggle to find some good kind of swally worthy stories uh, this week. Obviously, you and I are comparatively lucky. We're not We're not in the UK, but it, it's tough, I think, at home at the minute. Really tough. I know our mutual friend was uh, complaining about the new restrictions the other day and things. So I guess, you know, when, when people are stuck in the house, they're not getting up to the type of silly crimes and misdemeanours that we enjoy talking about in the podcast. Yeah, I agree. I think it's quite difficult. So shall we, uh, shall we dive into our review? Yes, let's dive into our review. So it was your choice this week, Greg. So what are we going to look at this? So I got, I brought out the big guns this week. You know, we had a bit of a, we had a bit of an easy, an easier one last week with uh, Gary's War. Just a little. 25 minutes short. So this week we've gone for a movie and I've gone for Danny Boyle's feature film debut from 1994, Shallow Grave. Wonderful. Do you want to take us through? Uh, I mentioned before Danny Boyle's feature film debut, also Ewan McGregor's uh, feature film debut. It's a sort of three-header. Him, Ewan McGregor, Kerry Fox and Christopher Eccleston. Uh, It was the highest grossing movie, highest grossing British movie of 1995. I think there was a bit of a feeling that the British film industry was on the way back after a after a kind of fallow period in the 80s and 90s Four Weddings and a Funeral had come out the year before and was like a massive hit and then Shallow Grave the next year and then the year after that another Danny Boyle film Trainspotting um, it was one of the first movies that Film 4 put money into as well the story uh, it tells the, the movie tells a story of three Edinburgh flatmates who are who in the process of uh, interviewing new potential flatmates find the enigmatic human played by Keith Allen, who moves in and promptly dies of a drugs overdose a day or two later, leaving a suitcase filled with a million pounds, which the flatmates decide to keep for themselves, but not before they dispose of Keith's, of Hugo's body uh, in the, in, and of course it sets a chain of events that sets the flatmates against each other and gets them into trouble with the guy, with Hugo's partners who are looking for the money, the police are involved, they start to turn on each other. Christopher Eccleston's character starts to go a bit mad. Uh, he, st- he plays a very good part. He plays David, who is the kind of quiet 
one of the group. Uh, he's the, he's a chartered accountant. He's a bit uptight at the beginning. Kerry Fox plays Juliet, who is a doctor, and Ewan McGregor plays Alex, who is like a tabloid newspaper and a real like, the, the kind of main antagonist of the three. And uh, unfortunately for David, he draws the short straw when it comes to cutting off Hugo's hands and feet and smashing out his teeth, so he can't be identified. Uh, and this, uh, you know, his guilt and horror at what he's been involved in and the need to have the money starts to drive him a little mad. Uh, so very, very good film. I, ha- I hadn't seen this movie for a really, really long time. I had forgotten just how good it was, if I'm honest. And also, a lot of the obviously I remembered like the 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 main three actors, but I forgot that Ken Stott was in it. I'd forgotten that um, that Gary Lewis has got a, a little part at the beginning. It was his first his first movie role as well. Although he's he's hardly I don't think he's even getting any lines uh, as one of the potential one of the potential flatmates. I've forgotten that uh, Colin McCready's in it. He plays the the unlucky uh, Cameron, the potential flatmate. But no, I really really enjoyed it. What's what's your what's your first kind of memory of this movie? I thought about this quite a lot, and I cannot remember. The, the first time I had seen Shallow Grave and it pains me to, to say that I can't remember I think I'd seen it before Train Spotting. I'm pretty certain I'd seen it kind of in probably rented it on video beforehand Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it must have been about 1995. I'd probably seen it for the first time, but yeah, it stuck with me, and I I remember vividly, you know. And I've probably seen this film about 25 times, but I can't remember the first time I've seen it, which really annoyed me in a way. Like, when was the first time I saw this film? I can remember vividly watching it so many times. I don't know when the first time I saw it was. I think I saw it. I'm pretty sure I rented it because I, I I was mates with a couple of kids that were. About older than me and they were at college and what one of them had been talking about it and uh, they, had, they, had, they had seen it at the cinema so I, re- I remember hiring it and watching it on video because it was the first time they had that teaser trailer for train spotting at the beginning before the film mm. You know when uh, Ewan McGregor's tied to the the railway lines, uh, and um, so I thought that was I remember, and I remember watching it with my mum and my stepdad, and they just hated it, like hated oh. it. Yeah, I I I, wa- I watched it on my own first, and I thought, oh, they will like this. It's kind of a it's, it's a kind of a thriller. It's a bit of a kind of it's a bit of a kind of Hitchcockian element to the storyline. Um, I thought they would really like it, and they they I don't think they even watched it. I think they they watched maybe like the first maybe half an hour or whatever and then threw in the towel and went to bed but um yeah that that was that i'm like you i mean i I, I couldn't swear to my very first viewing of it but i know that i definitely rented it and i definitely was still living at home the first time i saw it but i haven't i honestly couldn't tell you the last time i watched it it must be it was like 15 years maybe even longer since the last time i seen it wow okay yeah i think i've watched this a lot i think i watched this maybe a few years ago Mm -hmm. in terms of just kind of because i I, I do love this film so much. And it's funny you say that about the Hitchcockian element. Uh, this very much in terms of the, the opening scene, the the circular camera work when they're kind of going around Christopher Eccleston, you know, 
mm-hmm. David, uh, his eye and his face, and he's doing the voiceover. Yeah, it it's very Hitchcocky and kind of vibe, but also a very when I watch this and I haven't seen it maybe for about five six years. Instantly when I was watching it, I was like, eh, it's train spot. It's a train spotting intro in terms of the the voiceover and the the mm. kind of the way the camera's going, and it just led me to be like, yeah, this is train spotting, and this was Danny Boyle's kind of training train spotting mm. in a way but yeah it, it it's the beautiful opening shot of Christopher Eccleston with the voiceover and it, yeah it's a wonderful monologue that he delivers and and then it just hits into the the left field intro and it's a fucking banging tune mm. and going around the streets of Edinburgh and this is he was kind of credited as like the main music person of the film as uh, yeah left field and Brian Tofono right I know he's a he's a, he's a, he's a, the cinematographer that uh, Simon Boswell, right? He get, he gets the uh, yeah. he gets the credit for the music. Just to jump back to that opening shot of Christopher Eccleston's eye, like it's quite reminiscent of Janice Lee lying dead in the bath in Psycho. You know when yeah. the, oh, yeah. the yeah. camera kind of turning, and then you know they, he, he 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 jumps to the they, they kind of skylight at the top of the stairs uh, of the flat that that they live in is a is a bit like an eye as well. You know what I mean? It's uh, he's got he's got quite a funny story, Christopher Eccleston, about his mortuary scenes because mm. at the end when he is put in to the drawer at the end of the movie he apparently they shot it in a real mortuary and he was you know the way the way he tells it was he was it was his first kind of big film although he had done a couple of smaller films but his first big film he was, he's like, he was a young actor he tried to do a good job but Danny Boyle tells it that he was nervous about being in the mortuary because it was a real mortuary and so for the scene where they put him in the drawer they got this crew member to kind of squeeze himself in next to him and just kind of talk to him and keep him calm and everything so the Christopher Eccleston says that this guy's in there kind of Glaswegian crew member he's got a, a jumper jeans Doc Martens he's got a parka jacket on he's squeezed in there Christopher Eccleston is naked with a sheet over him so the drawer closes and the Glaswegian guy's eh, are you alright Chris are you, are you okay you feeling alright and he's like yeah yeah, yeah I'm alright I'm alright he said, he said I said, I tell you no word of a lie this Glaswegian guy says I hope they get this shot soon it's fucking freezing me <laughs> Eccleston's like oh, are you, are you cold are you <laughs> but yeah like, so they they, they got a, a, a million pounds was all they had to make the film they spent most of it now up until I started doing the research for the podcast don't know why I always thought that the flat was a real flat that they had that they shot in because there are because I, I know they although the film's set in, set in Edinburgh they shot a lot of it or most of it in Glasgow because they got £150,000 from the Glasgow Film Fund um, but there are big uh, tenement flats like that in Glasgow maybe not as big but there are that kind of style big huge kind of top floor flats up in the West End and things but the flat was actually a sound stage that they built I had no idea and it, it, yeah. it, 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 it makes sense for some of the some of the shots that Danny Boyle's got like the shot at the end where the camera comes down under the floor and you see the money there and when the camera slides from room to room uh, through the door but yeah I, I'd always thought that uh, I, I'd always thought that they had found a they had found a flat and, and shot it in the flat yeah I did read that actually that they they spent most of the budget in terms of making this soundstage to look like the flat and they ran out of money quite quickly 
and they had to start selling off parts of the furniture. And that's why in the scene when uh, Ken Stall and his deputy are interviewing them, you'll actually, if you look in the background, the flat is kind of bare. And that's because they'd sold off most of the furniture to pay for the, the rest of the, you know, filming. Right. Yeah, I read that. I mean, I, I don't think I was the only person who, um, who thought that because I was watching an interview with Hugh McGregor and he said a lot of people after the film came out would ask him, where is that flat? You know, if it's on the market, <laughs> can we, it's up, you know, if it's up for sale. And he, and he was like, no, it's not. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Oh, it's a lovely flat. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, just to kind of stay, stay on, on uh, Hugh McGregor for a minute. So he he kind of, he cites this as his, his, his kind of first movie, but he's actually in, um, he was in Bill Forsyth's movie with, uh, which I've still never seen, the one that he shot with Robin Williams, Being Human. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a small part in that, uh, Christopher uh, Hugh McGregor. And obviously, you know, I, I, I don't think this was the film that really made him a star. I think... Train Spotting is the movie that that kind of kind of catapulted him up to the Hollywood A list. But re, re, really, of all the actors, he's the only one that's really become a kind of megastar. Like Christopher Eccleston, yeah, he, he, he had done a few things before. He done a couple of movies. He'd done um, Let Him Have It about Derek Bentley, kind of true crime, probably a true crime movie with one of the guys out of Press Gang. Can't remember. I can't remember which one. But rest of anything else. He had a he obviously had a reoccurring role in the or he was like a he was a member. Of the main cast rather in the first couple of crackers as well but he's never really you know he he's never really for every sort of shallow grave that um chris freckleson's done he or 28 days later or like a really good movie there's a gi joe or uh what's that um car that car theft movie with nicholas cage like an old gone in 60 seconds yeah Gone in thirty seconds. It's uh, his career's been. I, th- I think he's been more successful on um, on television than he has been in movies. Well, that's the interesting thing because this film was basically sold on the basis of Kerry Fox being the the lead actor and the lead role, and she is the lead in terms of the the credits. And that's because Kerry Fox was was quite famous at the time because of the things that she'd been doing. And Christopher Eccleston and Ewan McGregor were quite unknown quantities and I believe they actually had to screen test and audition for the roles in the film and it says a lot that you know Kerry Fox what has she really done since I I don't know I'm not aware of her work and Christopher Eccleston okay he's done quite a few things but he's probably going to be best remembered for Doctor Who yeah yeah but I mean he's done I mean he's he's done more interesting things than Doctor Who I mean he's he did uh, Our Friends in the North with uh, Daniel Craig and um, Mark Strong which is a which which I wish was set in Scotland so we had an excuse to do it on the Swally it's absolutely brilliant you know he's 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 on this thing just now. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but he's wee boy. We had, we mentioned it last week actually because um, Greg McHugh's in it. But a wee boy that I think he's he's the uncle or the grandfather of a little boy that's got autism, sort of set in Manchester. So you know he, he does he he does strike as being quite a sort of intellectual actor. You know I know he does a lot of plays and things like that. Um, but I suppose sometimes you've just got to take the money, right? And if I'm sure it's probably not hard work to go and do a few days on. Or a, a few weeks in the US in GI Joe, <laughs> whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? For half a million quid or whatever he got paid for that. You know, I guess. I, I guess for, for for all the shitty, well-paid roles he does, it lets him do the less well-paid, more interesting stuff. 
Oh, yeah, I would agree. I, I think Christopher Eccleston, he's quite a, a tortured soul. I think he suffers from anxiety and there's a lot that holds him back with regards to his career and what he's done. And he's had a great career. But out of the three leads, you can't argue, you know, Ewan McGregor has obviously had the, the most stellar career. I mean, Christ, he got to play Obi-Wan Kenobi, for God's sake. That's, you know, every child's dream yeah he's definitely um he definitely won the film as they say there's a connection to the movie with um i don't think danny boyle's ever came out and said it but the film well the it's he he did you know danny danny boyle isn't the writer of the film the the the, the guy who wrote the film is john hodge or rather dr john dr dr john hodge it seems to be kind of based on one of the canterbury tales by chaucer the pardoner's tale about three guys who go looking for death and find a bag of gold and two of them send the other one for wine to celebrate the good fortune and when he comes back they kill him so there's less people to share the gold but little do they know that the guy who went to get the wine had had the same idea and poisoned the wine so they all end up dying morality tale where shallow grave goes off that is that the only one that the, the, the only one of the three is that dies is uh, david played by christopher eccleston as we mentioned earlier on he starts to go a little bit mad there's a big fight at the end you know I think you're you're led to believe initially that Alex has died because uh, David has pinned him to the floor with a carving knife through his shoulder which um, Juliet hammers in to make sure that he can't get to make sure that he can't get up with her shoe while she runs away with the money apparently Danny Boyle added the the line that Alex says at the end when he he says hello to Ken Stott's inspector just to make just so the audience know that he hasn't died just lying there in in a pool of a pool of his own blood and of course he's he's laughing because he has had the last uh, the last laugh if you like at the end he's he's swapped the money in the suitcase for perfectly cut bits of newspaper <laughs> I've got to say to make it to make to trick them into thinking that the money's there and he's put the money under the floorboards so there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about about the film first one is the scene where Alex is watching the quiz show so the quiz show is lose a million it's hosted hosted by Chris talent was that an actual quiz show yes it was was it I was trying to think because yeah. I was because I was thinking to myself, is it familiar or is it only familiar because I've seen this movie before? You know. No, I had to double check because I did think, is this some sort of strange Danny Boyle trope almost that he has quiz shows in his film? Because obviously you have this in Shallow Grave, then in Train Spotting you have the the game show. I can't remember what it's called, but hosted by Dale Winton that the the parents are on, and then of course he wins an Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire, which features the Indian version of who wants to be a millionaire. So is this a thing, you know, that Danny Boyle loves to have a game show in his films? But yeah, I had to check and no, uh, Chris Tarrant did present this show, How to Lose a Million. And of course, four years later, he goes on to present who wants to be a millionaire. So yeah, the, the footage shown in the film, I think must be from a, a real episode. I think the premise was that you have a million pounds and whoever loses it fastest wins 5,000 pounds. Which is a bit of a cop-out, really. Right, okay. It's a bit weird, right? You just like, oh, I'll just keep the million. (laughs) The other thing I was going to ask you, do we think Alex is a Rangers fan? Well, that was one other point I had. They've got this massive flat and the TV that Alex is watching the football on is tiny. And it's a VHS combo, which obviously you don't see nowadays. Yeah, tiny TV. But yeah, I suspect that his reaction to, I think, the the away team score. So I, I, I yeah, I think he is probably a Rangers fan. He was obviously watching a European game. 
game because uh, seemed to be playing in a white jersey and I was trying to think which Scottish teams played in a white jersey in the mid-90s even in a way one you know and that scene does have one of my favourite parts and quotes from the film when Juliet comes in and she says have you seen Hugo? Have you seen Hugo? No any idea which channel he's on? <laughs> That's right. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you. So the office that David works at. So David is a chartered accountant. We see him at his work, I think, twice. Now this is the this is the mid nineties. You would, and they're all all him and his fellow accountants are sitting around with ledgers and like pens and pencils. You would think that in the mid nineties they'd be using computers, right? Yeah, it's strange because Alex is a journalist, but he has a computer and you see him with a laptop as well. And David's firm, I don't know, I've never really seen any of the Harry Potter films, but it does kind of remind me of like a kind of Harry Potter-esque way. They're sitting with the the lamps and, you know, it's very old school. So I, I guess they couldn't afford computers in this accountancy firm, or maybe they just do it the old school way. And you have to think that there's the there's, and I was trying to think what it might be, but you have to think that there's a meaning to it because it, it doesn't feel like Danny Boyle like leaves anything to chance, or that there's a reason for everything that he does. You know, like I, I was, I was interested. I watched a little video on YouTube where they were talking about the opening scenes when um, the three flatmates are interviewing a potential fourth flatmate. So. So they're shot from lower down to make them appear higher up and the potential the, the potential flatmate is shot sort of kind of dead on in the middle of the sofa to kind of demonstrate that they're very much by themselves and all that kind of thing so um, the, I was so I was trying to think what 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 reason would Danny Boyle have had for like making the uh, David's office so kind of Dickensian <laughs> you know and uh, unless it's just to demonstrate why he's the way he is in the in the in the, in the in the early parts of the movie he's, he's sort of uptight and he's stiff and when he's leaving the house in the morning and Alex is trying to ask him things and he's like I don't have the time I don't have the time and he's um, you know I thought maybe that might be the reason they, they, they... Uh, that could be it it shows how antiquated and kind of Dickensian his life is and you know by the book uh, pardon the pun and, and that's what leads him to kind of break almost and have his kind of breakdown and taking the money because he wants to escape this kind of mundane life. He's spending his life looking after other people's money and, and, and working out how much they've got. And that's what leads him to be like, ah, you know what? Screw this. Uh, so it, in terms of flatmates and flat shares, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to interview prospective flatmates or uh, been on the other side, much like Hugo or Cameron? For example, no, I've I've always whenever I whenever I shared a flat with someone, it was generally with somebody I already knew. You know, I never um, I've never shared with a stranger. I, to go back even further, I mean, that's you can tell that the dynamic between them, they're very close and they're very good flatmates. In the beginning, when they're interviewing, you can tell they're total cunts. Yeah, total. Yeah. I mean, when they're interviewing Cameron, they're really nasty. And even the goth girl, the stuff they ask her, it's, yeah, they're taking the piss. They're not nice people. But when Hugo comes round, it's only Juliet that interviews him and basically offers him effectively the flat. Then he comes round for dinner. They're having dinner for the first time. Alex gets a little bit drunk. And the first kind of question David really asks him is, have you ever killed a man? And that's before David has turned to the dark side if you excuse the Obi-Wan pun again, does that mean it was always kind of in David 
the kind of the dark edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the first kind of clue that David isn't going to be what you assume he is. And and the the, the thing about the 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 interviewing scenes, you know, like you, you mentioned it before, how strong that their relationship is initially, because they're like hanging on to each other, laughing behind the door after Cameron's gone and the other guys that the interviews are that the interview go, and then that's the last shot of the movie. Like, well, well, not the last shot of the movie, but when the credits are rolling at the end, it's that scene of the three of them I guess in better times after the events of the movie um, all kind of laughing together but uh, yeah I mean he you mentioned Cameron. They, they, Alex does absolutely destroy him, but then Cameron gets his revenge at the at the at the Cayley later on, right? Which is fantastic. When he punches Alex in the face, everyone's on Cameron's side. Yes, go on, Cameron. I mean, Alex is a fucking dick, but he's also hilarious. Like he—he's probably my favourite character. He's so good, he's so funny, uh, but he's a bit of a dick. And he has one of my favourite lines of the film, probably the funniest moment that I was cracking up at. Hugo's been lying dead in the flat for a few days, probably, and David comes back in and says, "He's still here." Yeah, he couldn't get his car started. That line just cracks me up, and it sums up Alex. He's just a, a sarky bastard, a bit like myself, actually. I do like what he says to. I know it's it's quite cruel, but I like what he what he says to Cameron at the Cayley when Cameron. It looks like Cameron's maybe selling roses because it's, it's the Cayley's a fundraiser, uh, and he looks like he's he's selling he's selling roses to raise money. And you McGregor or rather Alex starts to say, "Oh, yeah, Cameron," and starts to call him over, and you know Cameron kind of goes over. He's he's smiling. Sanctum, you know, there's obviously an element that he wanted to fit in with these three kind of professionals, you know. And um, as he walks over to the table, Ewan McGregor says, Oh, sorry, I thought you were somebody else. <laughs> they all start laughing at him again. Look over there. It's Cameron. Who? Cameron, you remember Cameron. No, I don't. What's he doing here? That's not him. It's Cameron. Cameron, come on over here. Come on. Nothing, we thought you were someone else. <laughs> Good luck! <laughs> But why does he have to follow us around? Anyway. What? But yeah, he's a, he is, it's a, it's, it's a good, I mean, what, what I will say about Alex is that of the three of them, he definitely gets it worse than anybody because he gets, he, he gets beaten up in the toilets by Cameron. He gets, his shins panelled by Peter Mullen when the guys come, when they come looking for the money. And then he gets a bit of a kicking off David before getting stabbed in the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I would massively disagree with you that Alex gets it worst. I mean, first of all, okay, he, he does take a bit of a beating, but David ends up dying. Juliet thinks she's fucked off with the money, ends up with a, a suitcase full of newspaper clippings, has to bugger off to Rio. I mean, that's her career as a doctor. Screwed. She's going to be on the run for the rest of her life. So I, I, I don't think Alex has it worst at all. But then, what do you think happens to Alex, idiot? Like, he's been found in a flat with a dead body and a knife through him. And Ken Stott's character obviously knows that there's some sort of link to the dead bodies they found in the woods. So how on earth is he getting away with this? Because 
as I say, Ken Stott's character is on to him already. He knows something's there. In the scene where he's interviewing and he says, you know, would it surprise me, would it surprise you to know that their car's parked outside? He knows something. How is Alex explaining this away? Because Ken Stott knows. Yeah, I think he is, you know, it's it's sort of established that he is a veteran detective. You know, the way he talks about uh, Mitchell, his character, uh, his partner rather, played by played by John Hodge, funnily enough. And he, he describes him as a, ri- as a rising star. And he says, you know, with my expert tutelage, he was, he's one to watch or, or something like that. So I think with that in mind, he's probably a very seasoned detective. He's seen it all before and his police, his police instincts tell him that these three people know something about something, you know? You know, he, he might not suspect them of of like kind of killing three people but he knows that um he knows that there's something that these guys that these these two guys and this girl know something i think that's that's the way i took it and i i i, I, I love his answer machine message you know when alex calls him and it calls his <laughs> i can't remember like something about how you can't hold back the night it, the, the office is closed but you can't hold back the night <laughs> Oh, it's wonderful. The, the scene when he's interviewing David and he has the... It, uh, so there's four people living here? No, three. And, and okay. And it's great acting from Christopher Eccleston as well. You know, who told you three? Uh, who told you four? Sorry, who told you four? And it, it's the way Ken Stott turns to... It's number two and he's like, okay, put down three, not four. You can use numbers or words either. Which did you use? Both. Excellent. It's just wonderful, his character. He, he's so well-rounded and so good. Even though he's just in it for a, a small bit of time. Yeah, I mean, I like I said before, I'd completely forgotten that Ken Stott was in this film. Totally forgotten that he was in it. But yeah, the scenes, like, you know, as you would expect from an actor like Ken Stott, like every scene he's in, he's, it's his scene, you know? Although he's not in very many, as you say. And then you have the big fight at the end. And it, it's quite ridiculous and comical in a way. And of, of course, I think, I don't know if you mentioned, but the, the stunt coordinators walked off because effectively they weren't getting paid. So the, the three actors had to effectively choreograph that fight themselves. And it does get a bit ridiculous, but quite realistic in a way. When he's effectively like banging David's head in a fridge and just jamming the door shut. It's quite ridiculous, but it's also quite realistic as to how an actual fight would pan out. You know, there's no massive haymakers and things. It's it's an ugly fight. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, they they couldn't afford this. They couldn't afford to keep the stuntman on any later. Something like that, right? And he was like, "Look, I'll, I'll, I'll stay on, but yeah, you, you've got to pay me." And they said, "Well, we we can't pay you." He said, "Right, well, I'm away then." <clears throat> I tell you about the. You know how I'm. A, you know how I'm a fan of. Uh, I mentioned it on the Calibre um, on the Calibre episode. You know those kind of cool catches that people do in films where they kind of someone will throw them like keys or something. They just kind of snatch them out the air. It's like, good example there's, there's a good example of one of those catches in Shadow Grave when um, Alex is at the drum kit and uh, Juliet throws the set of keys to him and he just he, he, he sort of grabs them at like kind of stomach level you know not like out the air with his hand up above his head they're like they're coming towards him he just like snatches them and like I said on the Calibre podcast I always wonder how many shots <laughs> they have to do you know because the, I mean I don't know are you are you like are you that good at catching that if I threw you a set of keys you could just you would get them first time in a really cool way yeah of course I'd catch it first time I probably wouldn't. I'd drop them, but I'll, let's just say I would catch them first time. So the movie was made for a million pounds. I was so I, now. I for some reason I had it in my head that that this was a more successful movie than Four Weddings and a Funeral. Because what? Why is that even in your head? I of course, know. it's not. 
It was to do with some of the marketing that was going on. But when when I think about it, I think I think the marketing was the most successful British film since For When. Yeah. Well, yeah, that would make sense. But yeah, of course it's not. Well, it led me to do some box office uh, research. So the film, the film grossed worldwide. It grossed nineteen point eight million dollars. Now, by context, Train Spotting grossed sixteen point five million. So Shallow Grave outsold Train Spotting. But interestingly, Train Spotting two grossed forty two million. Grossed uh, forty two million dollars worldwide. So the Train Spotting sequel did more than twice as much as Shallow Grave and. Train spotting. Four weddings. Yeah. Four, four, four weddings gross 245.7 million. <laughs> so it's fucking. <laughs> I'm surprised to hear that, but I, I can understand. I would think Train Spotting 2 probably with inflation and with streaming and people watching, but yeah, I'm surprised I did Train Spotting. But I'm not surprised to, to hear about Shallow Grave, yeah, doing that. But yeah, uh, quite surprising. I, I guess, do you know the story about Danny Boyle's dad and Shallow Grave? I know that Shallow Graves his favorite film of all the, of all the movies that he's done since. So yeah, every film that Danny Boyle has done since, uh, he he shows his dad, and despite the fact he's won an Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire, he shows his dad every film, and yeah, his dad says ah, it, it was really good, but. It's not as good as Shallow Grave. Um, he does say that, um, you know, just we mentioned Trainspotting a, a moment ago. He said that there's a sly connection between this film and Trainspotting. So with Trainspotting train supposed to take, all the events Trainspotting supposed to take place in the 1980s. And Keith Allen, who plays the unlucky Hugo in Shallow Grave, also plays a drug dealer in the last kind of 10-15 minutes of Trainspotting. And there's a, a kind of implication that it's the same character. So he cut. He comes to a sticky end in um, Edinburgh a few years later, you know? Yeah, uh, I'd like to think it is as well. I'd, I'd yeah, like <laughs> that if it was the same character. So, in terms of our awards, uh, the first one, we have the ironically named Ewan McGregor Nudity Award for getting his cock out, but he doesn't actually get his cock out in this film. Uh, I'm guessing... Keith Allen's probably going to win this. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Who was your, was your other option? Um, Kerry Fox coming out the bathroom with a top off? Yes, it was. Uh, and that's a scene I have fond memories of as a, a teenage boy. Yes, I, I do remember watching that scene quite a lot. So yeah, that would be the other contender. But I think we have to give it to Keith Allen's cock. Just staying on Kerry Fox, she in this movie, in this movie, so the scenes at the Cayley, when she's got a little black dress on, and her and Ewan McGregor are doing the Eight Some Reel or the Dash and White Sergeant, whatever they're doing. She, it's, uh, she, it's Strip the Willow. Strip the Willow. She's, um, I mean, she is sexy, right? She really sexy in that in, in those scenes but the, but the, <laughs> but then in later scenes they, they, they sort of dress her kind of quite kind of frumpy you know particularly the the scene where the two guys Peter Mullen and the other guy kick in the door and when they're looking for the money and she's wearing this big woolen cardigan that they pull over her head before they tie her hands behind her back and at the, I think she's wearing I think it's the same cardigan she's wearing at the end for the big Kind of the big kind of fight at the end of the movie, but she, uh, yeah, I mean, in, the, in that case, and particularly the scene when you, the scene when you McGregor's on his back when he falls over on his back at the Cayley, and she kind of sticks her shoe in his mouth, and there's that shot from his perspective of her. I mean, she looks fucking great. Oh yeah, it's very sexual. Mm. The the shoe in the mouth scene. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
for the the most Taggart appearances, I've got Ken Stott on one. He's in an early he's in an early Taggart story, um, and Peter Mullen obviously, and Gary Lewis. But Colin McCready kind of wins it because he be, he became a he be, he became a Taggart uh, became one of the main cast for the last kind of few years of the of the show when Alex Norton was the was the was the top boy. Where's your who did you give the Francis Begbie Award for best swearing to? It's funny for a film like this. There's there's not a huge amount of swearing in it, really. I, I struggle to to pick up on a, a comical or theatric swearing. I think I'd have to give it to David uh, at the Cayley when he says about the fucking bin bag. To say was this. Aha! The Divine Juliet. Long time no see. Brian, would you care to dance? Hold on. Who do you think you are? What? Who do you think you are? You interrupted us. Well, I'm Brian McKinley. And who are you? Well, Brian McKinley, if you want to talk to my girlfriend, you talk to me first. If you want to dance with you apply in writing three weeks in advance, or you're going to end up inside a fucking bin bag. You didn't apply, so you don't dance. Not swearing that would sort of stick in your mind, you know? Okay, no, I agree. That was what I had as well. So the Jake McQuillan, your T-Zoot award for most violent moments... I think like the scene, the scenes with Peter Mullen and the other guy when they're torturing people um, to try and find out where the money is. So there's the guy that gets there's a guy that gets dunked in the bath, the guy that gets left in the freezer. But I think the first scene we see them in when the guy gets attacked at the ATM is probably is probably the probably wins the Jake McQuillan Award for me. What about you? I think I would have to give it to that too. Uh, that being said, I think the scene where they David basically smashes Hugo's teeth in is is quite graphic when they're burying the body. However, also I think a shout out to when they kill Peter Mullen and his friends and they take them out into the woods to bury them. And it kind of goes unsaid that David is going to be sawing the hands and feet off once again. And he is so graphic in the way that he is sawing their hands and feet off, like almost manic. And that's kind of a, a really on edge kind of scene and and yeah quite disturbing yeah i mean you know you're sort of spared like the the first kind of dismemberment if you like um of hugo you're spared the the worst of it you know that you you see uh david you know you can tell that he's frantically sawing and sawing whilst uh you well alex is digging the the shallow grave but you know they you do you do sort of see as you say when he um he's having to knock out the teeth but I th- but yeah, you, I think if this if it had been made a few years later, this film, I think that scene would have been a lot more graphic. I think because I imagine they're expensive those types of effects, right? So to end things on Shallow Grave, what would you do if you're you find your flatmate had suddenly died? You went into the room, you opened a suitcase, found a million pounds. What would you do? Uh, I'd probably. I've got to be honest. I would. I would love to tell you that I would do something like what they do in Shallow Grave, but the reality is, I'd probably peel a few hundred quid off for myself and then phone the police. Yeah, that's exactly what I'd do. Probably peel off a few hundred, maybe a few thousand, or I don't know. Maybe just put the whole suitcase in the water tank and say it never existed. Who's to know? I mean, no one's going to find out. Why didn't they just do that from the start? Yeah, I mean, they could have just done that, but then there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be much of a film, <laughs> Johnny. 
what did you have your um what, what was your archetypal scottish moment i think it has to be the Cayley, doesn't it that's kind of the the most archetypal scottish moment everyone's in kilts everyone's kind of you know stripped the willow that's got to be the winner yeah i had the Cayley. i had i had you mcgregor drinking a can of McEwen's export and watching a rangers game um as a potential actually you know what i tell a lie it is ewan mcgregor after the Cayley, with a hangover, nursing his wounds, drinking iron brew out of a glass bottle to kind of get over his hangover. That's my archetypal Scottish moment. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't have that, um, but I'm kind of wishing I had. Yeah, that's, a much, that's, that's a much better one. Um, James Cosmo Award for being in everything Scottish. I think I'd probably go with Ken Stott. We could go with Colin McCready because he's been in, you know, Small Faces and Taggart and quite a few things, but I, I think Ken Stott has to, to win it for me. I I've got I had Ken Stott. Uh, Colin McCready, I mean, he's got a couple in the Swally Tally now because he's in Small Faces. He's got a slightly bigger part in Small Faces, even he sells Lexi the skeleton at the beginning of the film. Sean Connery Award for Who Won the Movie, also known as Who Got to Go Home and Fuck the Prom Queen Award. <laughs> you, McGregor. Yeah, it has to be. Kerry Fox is great. Christopher Eccleston has so many good moments. This is a brilliant role for him. But Alex is such a great character that it has to be Ewan McGregor. There's no question about it. He wins it for me. No, like I just, you know, to kind of round up, like I said before, I hadn't seen this for fucking years and years. You know, I'm not sure that, I'd, that I've would i seen it as many times as it sounds like you've seen it, um, as you mentioned earlier. But yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I picked it. It was really good to come back to it. So what's your choice for the next episode of The Swally? Well, I believe they ran this on the BBC over Christmas. So it, it's quite fitting in a way. And I think it's on the iPlayer. So... For the next episode, I'd like to go back to 1984 and have a look at Willie Melvin, a bank teller who dreams of becoming a novelist in City Lights, starring Gerard Kelly, Andy Gray, and of course, Swally favourite, Dave Anderson. <laughs> do, you think David, do you think Dave Anderson's on Instagram? We'll have to have a look for him, see if we can get him tagged. Yeah, we'll have to have a look for him. And I, I need to update the Swally tally because I think that's going to push him up to the top because he's been in quite a lot. So I, I think this will push Dave Anderson to the top of the Swally tally. Uh, Gerard Kelly as well. He's probably going to be up there too. Yeah, because he's got Scotch and Rye and Taggart and then City Lights after we do City Lights. I mean, I, I, Dave Anderson must be, he, he, he must be due a renaissance, right? Maybe, maybe we can start a wee campaign to get, make, make Dave Anderson famous again. Get him some parts. We see, we could see if we can get him a part in uh, River City or something like that, you know? I don't know. I don't know what's going on over there with all that stuff. Okie dokie. Well, I look forward to watching City Lights. I know it's on the BBC iPlayer for another three days, so I'll, uh, I'll <laughs> beast my way through that um, over the next couple of days and look forward to chatting about it next week. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you'd like to get in touch, you can follow us on Instagram at CultureSwallyPod or email us with anything you'd like us to review or any news stories you'd like us to comment on. And you can get in touch with us on CultureSwally at gmail.com or why don't you follow us on Twitter at SwallyPod. Okay, until next time. Till next time. See you later, Greg. Oh, no. Get yourself, Dave, fuck.